Good morning to all of you in the sanctuary and online. I'm Pastor Angie, and I've been on sabbatical in May, June, and July, and I'm glad to be back here with you today. And in these past three months, I've had some time to experience 30 different types of worship services and spend some time with family and research some resources in our community and travel to Italy to gain some insights on different movements of Christian history. And through those experiences, the Lord has been showing me different things about about what forms us as communities of faith. So Jesus told us that our discipleship to him is to include loving God and loving people. And early on in my sabbatical, I learned that the way to grow best in loving people the way that Jesus loves them is to first learn to let Jesus love you. And it's got to start there because it's only when we really receive the love of God for each one of us and we realize it's undeserved, when we begin to let ourselves feel Christ's daily affection, his daily affection for you, then we start also to notice in other people the love of Jesus for them in an authentic way. That we see Jesus loves imperfect people with a perfect love. And that perfect love wants to see us grow into the new creations that he came to make us, to show us that we are. And that's who Jesus shows himself to be as he redirects Peter's passions, as he gently gives new hope to the woman at the well, as he heals and feeds and surprises the fishermen and the tax collectors and the woman caught in adultery with unexpected grace to begin again with a different picture, with his picture of who they are, that they are forgiven and renewed creations, new creations of God. So the most important thing in our lives of faith is knowing who Jesus is and that he's good and that he's your savior and that his love and his grace are for you every day because knowing who he is for you changes who you are. And it also changes who you become as you live in relationship to the world. And in my sabbatical time, the theme that the Holy Spirit kept whispering to me over and over again in every book that I read, in every service I attended, every cathedral that I toured in Italy, was look for Jesus. What does this say about who Jesus is? What does this say about who people experience Jesus to be? And I think that more than ever, we need to know who Jesus is because Jesus is the exact image of the heart of God for us to know. And this world is full of substitutes that lead in very different directions. In Wayne Cordero's book, Jesus Pure and Simple, he says, if you were going to launch a mission to Mars, and at the launch you were off just by one inch, you would end up missing Mars by 900 miles, just by one inch. And the same can happen in our faith too. Because the truth is, we can't follow a copy. There's no pastor, no musician, no speaker, no role model who can show you who Jesus is calling you to be because you have to go all the way to the source, all the way to Jesus himself. There's no substitute for Jesus. So our job as a Christian community is to help one another go to Jesus. Because if you're going to be following Jesus, you need to know who he is and what he's about. And so there's nothing more important on this faith journey than the question that Jesus is asking today. Who do you say that I am? Because who you say Jesus is, is going to make all the difference in who you become. From Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. 
Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Whenever you read the Word of God, I want you to always notice the questions that Jesus asks, because he doesn't ask looking for information. He's giving them and us an opportunity to consider what we've experienced and what it means. So think about these people that the crowd thought Jesus was. John the Baptist, he was a fiery preacher. He called people to repent. And Elijah was this whirlwind of a prophet, and he was a miracle worker who reminded people that God was alive and active right among them. And Jeremiah was a prophet who cried, who was heartbroken over the stubborn hearts of people who refused to turn away from their sins and turn back to God. So you can kind of see why people saw each of those things in Jesus, why those are the names that came up. But none of them come close to revealing all that Jesus is. But you also notice that Jesus does not at all. He doesn't belittle or challenge those initial perceptions because he knows the heart. Because he knows that sometimes in our faith journey, we can only see one aspect of who Jesus is at a time. And that journey of revealing his character is important in coming to real faith for us. And we see this in scripture over and over again. This type of question keeps showing up. What do you think this means? Who is this man? Could this be the Messiah? Jesus shows us in so many parables that faith is like a seed planted in the ground. So when he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? He's not just quizzing them, do you know the correct answer? He wants to give them a chance to put into words what they've come to believe. You've been around me a while. Who do you say I am? And the answer to that, important is so, or that question is so important because it's always been important for the Christian community. It shapes who the community will become, the answer. And I think this is important to remember right now because I think we're in a time in history right now where we need realignment, where our world, again, is needing to rediscover the source, the character of God's heart in Jesus, to come back to the original, to come back to that question, who do you say that I am? When I was in Italy, I could see through different times in history, there were times when people lost sight of Jesus. And they, things started to get off by about an inch, and pretty soon it was 900 miles from the center. But every time that happened, the Holy Spirit would lift up a new aspect of Jesus' character, and each new generation would start to ask that question again, who do we say that Jesus is? And in the apostolic age, the early church, they held on to the thought of Jesus as teacher, as rabbi because they could see that God was doing something very new and they knew that they needed Jesus to show them each new step or they weren't gonna go anywhere. So in spite of heavy persecution, they were hungry to get together and to grow in knowing the ways of their master. Jesus teach us the ways of God. They saw themselves as student learners and they were eager to try themselves these things that they were taught, to see the Holy Spirit work through them as, they had, as the Holy Spirit had worked in Jesus. So when you think about this, I want you to think for a moment, who do you say that Jesus is? If Jesus is your teacher, then what does he do for you? If Jesus is your teacher, how will you respond to him? What does that mean for who you are in relationship with him? So is Jesus our teacher? Of course he is. The Son of God teaches us things about the character of God better than anyone else ever could. He is our teacher, but that's not all he is. 
In Luke 4, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after Jesus finished reading that, he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus didn't just come to teach us to do things. He came to accomplish things for us, to win and to proclaim God's victory over the things that sin has broken in this world and to proclaim instead over broken people like us a new era of the good news of God's favor for us in grace. That He is our teacher, but he's also our savior king. And this was important because the early church existed under this intense persecution in a world that was full of Caesars and kings. And then around the year 300, under this time of persecution, Emperor Constantine's mother, Helena, became a Christian. Now we don't know how she was introduced to Jesus, but I believe that God used this brave woman of faith to plant seeds in the heart of her son, Constantine. So then after the Lord gave him a vision, Constantine was ready to pass the Edict of Milan, stating that it was in their best interest that Christians not be persecuted anymore because he had seen a vision that there was one who was king of kings and lord of lords. And in the next hundred years, while the power of Rome decreased, the church grew and grew and grew. And when in 410 the Roman Empire fell, Augustine, an early Christian bishop in North Africa, wrote, Though the greatest city on earth is fallen, it's only a city of man. Look to the eternal city that endures forever. And that was a really important message in that time because without Rome and central power, there was no central authority. And the medieval age was this time of chaos and instability and fighting for who's in control, tribal warring over territories. And in that violent time, people needed the hope of knowing there was something eternal that they could trust, that Jesus is king, and he will come again, and his kingdom can never be shaken. And you can feel that message in those villages where all of a sudden these massive glittering cathedrals just rise up out of the center of everything, the city of God right in the middle of the city of man, as a reminder that to every peasant that no matter what their daily life was like, they were actually the son or daughter of the king of heaven. And that in walking through those doors, they remember they belong to a greater kingdom. If you've ever had the chance to be in any of those medieval villages where those cathedrals still stand, you can feel that message immediately when you walk through those doors. It's like stepping into a completely different world, a world of awe and humility, beauty and peace. And sometimes people question why, especially in that era of history, so much money was put into building these cathedrals. But I think in that time of chaos, those architects were answering on behalf of the people Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? With the answer, you are king of kings. You are lord of lords. And we trust in this uncertain world that your kingdom is the eternal one. And we put all of our hope in you for that promise. Now, can you understand why they might need that kind of reminder? That Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords? In a world so chaotic as that one, and as this one, don't we need that reminder too? If Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, 
What does he do for you? If he is king of kings and lord of lords, what does that say about who you are? How will you respond to him? So is Jesus king of kings and lord of lords, the victor of a certain future for us in an uncertain world? Yes, he is. And thank God that he is. But that's not all he is. In the 1330s, the Black Plague hit Europe. Europe lost one-third of its population. 60% of the population of Italy died within three years. Can you imagine that? And even before the plague, life was brutal. Death was a constant reality around people. And I thought about this a lot because it was kind of hard to miss, actually. Because in the art of Italy, Jesus was almost always depicted in one of three ways. Jesus as a baby, Jesus as a heavenly judge, or Jesus dead. <laughs> and mostly what I saw was Jesus dead. Jesus dead on the cross, Jesus dead being taken off the cross, Jesus dead being held by a weeping Mary, Jesus dead being brought to the tomb over and over and over again. And it really made me ask the question why, in this era of history, the artist's most common answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, was clearly, you are the crucified one. But it really didn't take me very long to understand because if you put yourself in their shoes, you can consider when we, those people that we love die or we ourselves are facing death, nothing comforts us more than knowing that even in death, we are not alone because the Son of God, our Savior Jesus, has been there. He's been dead and he knows what it is to die and he isn't dead anymore. That Jesus, the crucified one, shows us that God chose to meet us in the place that we fear the most with his own presence to make it a place of victory. That Jesus isn't only our teacher of how to walk the way of God. He's not only our king reigning in power over us and the world to come. He's also the crucified one. He is the crucified one who chose to meet us where we see nothing but pain so we can know in our times of pain that we will not be alone. He won't abandon us there either. So if Jesus is the crucified one, what does that mean for you? If Jesus is the crucified one for you, what does that say about who you are? If Jesus is the crucified one, how will you respond to him? Is he the crucified one? Yes, he is. And it's important that we know that he is for us. But that's not all he is. Jesus is also the resurrected one, the risen to new life who sends us to new life. And after touring all those many beautiful cathedrals in Italy, I started to realize why God sparked the Reformation. Because I saw that these images that people needed during this time of death to know that God was with them even in death, and the images that people needed to help them know that Jesus is still king, even in a time of chaos, those images were actually not the same images that are needed to teach people how to be disciples of Jesus in everyday life, right? That was the most striking thought that I had as I walked through those beautiful cathedrals, that it was very clear that Jesus was king. But my thought was, for people who couldn't hear the word, because the sermons were preached in dead languages that they didn't understand, and they couldn't read the word because most of Europe was illiterate and the couple of handwritten copies that existed were only for the priests. And they couldn't really see the pictures of the word because the images in their cathedrals of Jesus as baby, judge, or dead didn't really teach them how to call upon him in prayer, 
right? How did they ever learn what kind of king they had? How wonderful, how beautiful, how forgiving and gracious and healing and wise Jesus is. How could they follow him if they didn't know who he is? And it reminded me a time in scripture when John the Baptist was in prison and he sent his followers to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And do you know what Jesus answered? He didn't answer yes or no. Instead, he said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble on account of me. You see, Jesus knows, just believe me, I'm it. That doesn't actually create as much faith as we think it should. <laughs> Instead, when John needed to see, and what we need to see, when we doubt, is the character of the one that we're following. We need to see what is this kingdom about. We need to be reminded of the actions of the one who came to bring healing and new life and comfort and hope. You see, Jesus didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. And when we look at what Jesus did, our faith doesn't stumble. It's stabilized and it's strengthened because we remember who he is and what kind of kingdom he brings. But what could the church become when they didn't know who it was they were following? See, the Middle Ages were a really spiritually interesting time. Since God was the only authority universally acknowledged, a lot of power-hungry people tried to use God's name to gain power for themselves. And it led to corruption and the Crusades and ignorance of the word and violence and apathy. They had lost sight of Jesus. What had started off an inch from the truth and is now heading into outer space. So where would things go from here? And then my Italy tour moved to the next city, Assisi. And I saw again how God moves in human history. In the 1100s, a young man named Francis, who was a rich playboy kid and a total failure of a soldier, went to pray at a small falling apart village church outside of Assisi, Italy called St. Damien's. And there alone in the church, he was looking up at the image of Jesus on the cross and he heard the voice of Jesus telling him, Francis, I want you to rebuild my church. You can see it's falling apart. And Francis took Jesus literally at first. He started going door to door and asking each family for one brick to rebuild this crumbling church. But after a very short amount of time, he started to realize that Jesus didn't just mean rebuilding buildings. For us to know who God is, we, we have to know who Jesus is. The people didn't know the stories of Jesus. So Francis, much like a very early Martin Luther, started preaching sermons in the language of the people out in the villages. He sent teams of monks and, and like entertainers to sing songs about Jesus and tell stories about Jesus and do dramas about Jesus in the villages. And Francis created the very first live nativity with animals by local farmers at Christmas. He did everything he could to proclaim the good news to the poor. And in short, what Francis did was reintroduce people to Jesus. Because how do you repair a church that's falling down? You bring them to Jesus. And the faith of the people started to come back to life. Today, Francis is the most honored saint in Italy. And what novel, groundbreaking thing did he do? He tried to live what Jesus said. And people started seeing hope in the presence of Jesus. New life began. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, what does he do for you? If he is the resurrection and the life, what does that say about who you are in him? If he's the resurrection and the life, how will you respond to him?
And then several hundred years later, in a different corner of the world, the Holy Spirit did the same thing with Martin Luther. Martin Luther almost died under the strain of trying to deserve and achieve salvation by his own actions until his mentor sent him to the scriptures to read about Jesus himself. And in scripture, Martin saw Jesus, really saw him for the first time in his life. You are saved by grace through faith, not by your works, lest anyone should boast. See, the human soul can't be saved by our accomplishments, but by Christ alone. And for the first time, Luther, in seeing Jesus, saw his salvation as a good gift of God. And how different it was to live under the gift of the grace of God as a child of God, striving to be like Jesus, to walk as he walks and love as he loves, to the best of our imperfect ability, able to leave the results in his hands, as one saved by Jesus, not one attempting to earn something from him. Luther discovered that Jesus is the Prince of Peace because he brings a peace unlike any the world could ever give in his gift of grace. Luther was so inspired, he translated the word into the language of the people so that others could come to see for themselves how good that God is. And knowing this changed Luther's life forever. If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, what does he do for you? If he is the Prince of Peace, what is your response to him? Is Jesus the Prince of Peace? Yes, but it's not all that he is. Which leads us to now, today. It's been 500 years since the Reformation, and I have to ask, are there places where we have gotten off an inch and end up missing the master? What today is going to be the cry of our hearts that sends us back to the source to ask that question again? Who do you say that he is? You see, Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the confession on which Jesus' church is built. It's the foundation is who he is, what he has done, what he's doing for you. That Jesus walked the dirt of this earth and he taught and he loved and he blessed and he healed and he suffered and he died and he rose to life so you would never have to be separated from God ever again. That's how loved you are by the Lord of heaven. And when we take our eyes off of ourselves and the things of this earth and look to Jesus, suddenly in this world full of vengeance, we see peace. And in this world full of death, we see eternal life and healing. And in this world full of greed, we see sacrificial love. And in this world full of apathy, we see a love more powerful than death. And that is who God is. And if that's who God is, can there ever be a situation without hope? So let's learn to look to him. And since this message is about going back to Jesus himself, I want to end with the story of Jesus. And I'd like to invite you to close your eyes and imagine yourself in this story if it helps you. Some men brought to Jesus a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. And at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. Now think about the friends of this man who knew it was beyond their ability to help him, but what they could do was bring him to Jesus. And that's what they did in faith and in hope. Can you see their faces? 
And Jesus saw their faith and he responded. So what is Jesus, our teacher, teaching us in this story about who we are to be as people of faith? What is our mission? And in seeing the heart of this young paralyzed man, Jesus saw something in him we couldn't see. Maybe somewhere in his past, this young man had done something and he was harboring some kind of shame or self-blame that made him unable or unwilling to believe there could be a hope for his future. So before Jesus restored his body, he first took the step to restore this young man's hope. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, only God can forgive sins. The teachers of the law challenge him, not out loud, but in their thoughts. And Jesus' response to that is, yep. And if I have the authority to do that, I also have the authority to do this. Get up and walk. What is Jesus showing us about the heart of our king? How does our king use his authority? And why does Jesus have this authority to forgive and bring new life? Because he himself will pay the price for that sin. That he himself will bring in the power of that new life. Not just for this young man to have a new start, but for all of us. What is Jesus showing us in this story about why he came to be the crucified and the resurrected one? This young man brought to Jesus by his friends is restored in hope, restored to a second chance in life, and he's sent home as a witness that Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, brings peace where there once was none. And that same Jesus is here today with you and for you. And he has a question for you. Who do you say that he is? Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, through all generations... You have been at work, and by your Holy Spirit, Lord, redirect us and call us back to you, the source of our life and our hope. Lord, we pray that you would do the same in our generation, Lord, that you would draw our hearts back to you to find our hope and our peace, because Jesus, there is no one like you. And thank you for who you are and what you've done. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.